0: When I was in the third grade, some well-meaning teachers at the Christian school that I attended decided to show me a film about the last times. Uh, This movie began with uh, the rapture. This is the idea that uh, Jesus will come back and take all of the believers uh, up into heaven, and then the movie went into a rather frightening story about the persecution of those who came to faith after uh, the being left behind. Now, having studied these, these things about the end time as an adult, uh, I've come to realize that a lot of the theology in this film is uh, not really sound. But eight-year-old me bought this hook, line, and sinker. And frankly, it terrified me. And, and so every time they gave an altar call, I went down the aisle. And every time they said, raise your hand if you want to receive Jesus, my hand was up in the air. And I must have said that sinner's prayer a thousand times. My fear of being left behind and, and of that guillotine that was so vividly uh, portrayed in that film, it led me to, to say that sinner's prayer sometimes several times a day. And this went on for years. You see, I, I didn't understand the gospel back then, and, and I was living in fear of the in-between time, the, that between the time when I would sin and the time when I could remember to go and beg Jesus to forgive me, I was worried, what if Jesus comes back in that little window and, and I don't make it? And every time I came home to an empty house, I was terrified that I had missed the rapture. Now, maybe you're like this sometimes. Maybe you put your hope and your faith in your own actions, there, a prayer that you said uh, once or, or that time you were baptized or that time you were at a camp or a retreat and you went forward for an altar call. Or maybe you're putting your hope and your faith in this idea of uh, you've done more good things than you've done bad things and so you'll be okay. Or, or maybe you have a good biblical perspective. Maybe you're trusting that, that Jesus has done the work of righteousness on your behalf. Yet, when everything is silent and dark and you're trying to go to sleep, that hope and that faith, it just seems to kind of dissipate. And there's that nagging thought in your head. What if I'm wrong? Well, what if all that I've done is not good enough to, to please God? And if I catch coronavirus and, and I die tomorrow... Will Jesus really let a sinner like me into heaven? This morning, we're beginning a new series in the book of 1 John. And in chapter 5, verse 13, he, he tells us exactly why he wrote it. This is what he says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life that you may know you see John was the best friend of Jesus and yet he understood about doubt and having questions and that he is tempted sometimes to put his hope and faith and sense of satisfaction in things other than our Lord and Savior and he wrote this book it was actually a letter to the church at Ephesus he He wrote this to give us this kind of unexplainable peace and joy that only comes when we're resting in the assurance of our salvation. But I want to give you a forewarning. 1 John is, it's not all rainbows and unicorns. There's some difficult truth within it. Understanding and embracing our salvation means coming to a deeper understanding and acceptance of that which we are being saved from. So today we're just going to look at the first four verses. And uh, I'll give you a little bit more context, and then I just have three quick points that I believe will help us put our best foot forward in our journey towards assurance. So when, when this letter was written, the church in Ephesus was going through a difficult time. Because there had been a a sizable group of people inside of the church who have left. They've uh, seceded from the church, and they're doing their own thing now. And they were kind of the precursor to what uh, we later referred to as the Gnostics. And John was writing this letter trying to get ahead of this trend towards Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is the belief that only the spiritual has value. Only the spiritual is good and that anything physical is evil. And the problem with this belief, uh, one, it's not biblical, but the, the, the problem with this is it messes up some pretty important theology. For example, they don't believe that God created everything because God can't be responsible for creating evil. And, and worse than that, they believe that Jesus is purely spiritual, that he never became a human being, that he never took on flesh and walked among us. And and they taught some pretty weird things, like, like Jesus taking the form of a person was just an illusion. Or some of them taught that he actually possessed the body of another human being, like the way a demon would possess someone, and then he exited that body as it was being uh, crucified on the cross. These are some pretty awful teachings. And John was writing to remind the church of who Jesus really is, and to make his case for why they shouldn't follow these, these l- like seemingly super spiritual, maybe they looked like they were more enlightened when they were actually Gnostic heretics. John had a sense of urgency about this because his letter, it doesn't begin with any kind of a salutation. He just jumps right into his argument. And we find that in uh, verses one and two. It says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. You see, John witnessed a physical Jesus. Now, I've read this verse maybe a hundred times this week and Uh, It's still a lot of words crammed into a small space. And so I, I just want to paraphrase it for us really briefly. And this is what I think it's saying. We, the writers of the Gospels, proclaim to you, the church, concerning the word of life, that's the gospel message, what was from the beginning, that's Jesus, which we have seen, heard, and touched because though he was with the Father in eternity, he became incarnate with us. In other words, John is saying, I was there. I knew this guy. I saw him in the flesh. I touched him and he was real. He was a physical being. He was alive. He was not just a spirit. Maybe he even added, I saw this guy die. And then I saw him again after he was resurrected, and I heard him again, and I, and I touched him again, and guess what? He was still real. He was still a physical being. That's why I believe in him. That's why I wrote the Gospel of John, and that's why I started that Gospel by saying, the Word has become flesh. See, Jesus was there at the beginning, before creation. He definitely is a spiritual being because he is God. But when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they became separated from God because God is holy and he can't have anything to do with sin. See, Adam was a representative for all of mankind. When he sinned, we all sinned. Romans 3 says, uh, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of that sin, we have a price to pay. Humankind has to pay a price, and that price is death. In Romans 6, it tells us, The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Jesus took on flesh. He, he became a human being so that he could live that perfect life free from sin that we couldn't live. And then, and then Jesus uh, paid the penalty for our sin, death on a cross, and we could never pay that. This is why the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus as the new Adam in, in 1 Corinthians 15. See, Adam was the representative for all of humankind, but because he took on flesh and and he became fully man, so is Jesus. He's also our representative. Paul also writes this, for if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That's in Romans 5. Now, this is a mystery. We don't understand it fully, but it's so important to us that we know that Christ was fully God and fully man. Because if he wasn't, there can be no forgiveness of our sins. His life and his death would have no impact on us. It would have no bearing on our lives. John said twice that that Jesus was made manifest to him. When when something is made manifest, it it means it's, it's presented to us in a way that we can get to know it. God himself became a human being and allowed us to get to know him. He allowed John and others to get to know him very very well. John not only heard his teaching, but he saw Jesus with his own eyes, and, he, and not only did he see his Savior, but he was able to touch him with his own hands. There was no doubt in John's mind that Jesus was physically real. Here, because he's, he's kind of battling the Gnostics, you know, in, in this passage, John is really focused on just providing us with his eyewitness testimony so that we won't be swayed by, by people who are just trying to over-spiritualize everything. And, and I don't know their hearts. Perhaps they meant well. Maybe they were just trying to give God the reverence that he is due but the reality of it is, we lose Jesus entirely if we deny his humanity. You see, Jesus was an affectionate man. He embraced his friends, right? He, he washed their feet. He touched lepers. When he healed Peter's mother-in-law, she was in bed with a fever. Think about that in the context of what's happening in the world right now. Jesus took her by the hand as he healed her. It sounds crazy right now. And right now we, we, have, to, we have to content ourselves uh, with the presence of the Holy Spirit. But as amazing as that blessing is, it'll be even more amazing when Jesus returns. Because he's going to embrace us with physical arms. And he's going to kiss us with physical lips, and he'll probably tousle our hair a little bit, and he's going to physically wipe away the tears from our eyes. This is the Jesus that John knew, and this is the Jesus that he calls us to follow. Having assurance in our salvation begins with knowing that the Jesus we follow is real and personal. But next, John calls us into a a genuine Christian fellowship. In verse 3, this is what he says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. A few years ago, I was in a small group, and uh, we were talking about the topic of fear. And whenever that happens, um, the, I always have the same thought. I, I remember a quote from one of my favorite novels, and, and it's this, I, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. And right at that moment, I, I looked over, and the man who was, who was sitting next to me, I had just met him that day. And I noticed that in the margin of his book, he had written, fear is the mind killer. And in that moment, I knew that either he's a huge fan of Dune or he can read minds. And either way, I knew that we were going to be good friends. And, and we did. We became very good friends. And at first, it was just based on the, this kind of uh, you know, mutual interests. But then it began to deepen. Because both of us at that time in our lives, we were, we were at a place where we were, we were engaging in personal self-discovery. And we were also both at a place where we were realizing that what we found there, we were willing to turn it over to the care and control of Jesus Christ. And so we began to hold each other accountable and we began to celebrate in each other's uh, personal victories. And we began to help each other when we would struggle with things that were difficult. And as, as we experienced more and more personal victory and freedom, uh, we began to bring others along with us and disciple them and to, to show them uh, the things that had worked for us and how they could work for them as well. And to this day, even though he lives uh, farther away now, and I don't see him all that often, we still connect and we urge one another to do the next right thing when things are tough. And we celebrate each other's victories and we help each other when things get difficult. He's a fellow Christian. We're in Christian fellowship together You see, to be in a fellowship, it's more than just mere friendship. We have to work together to pursue a common purpose. Remember uh, in The Lord of the Rings, right? What's the first book called? It's called The Fellowship of the Ring. This is when Frodo courageously says, I'll take the ring to, to Mordor. And eight other people are so inspired by him that they pledged their lives to go with him on that quest. That was fellowship, a group of people striving together for a common goal. And I think that too often these days, we, we talk about fellowship as if it's just hanging out, right? Like uh, we go to missional community and we say, hey, what's the lesson on tonight? And they're like, "Ah, oh, we're not going to do a lesson tonight. We're just going to fellowship as if it's just doing nothing. And I think we diminish the beauty and the importance of biblical fellowship when we think of it as merely game night or getting coffee or just hanging out. And as those who follow Christ, those who are in the fellowship of believers, we do have a common purpose, and we know what it is. It's found in Matthew 28, and we call it the Great Commission It says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. John Stott, he he put it like this, We cannot be content with an evangelism which does not lead to the drawing of converts into the church, nor with a church life, whose principle of cohesion is a superficial social camaraderie instead of a spiritual fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, John was the last of the apostles, but he knew that the Great Commission was not going to die out with him. The Holy Spirit had enabled him and others to to write down their testimony, And the Holy Spirit continues to this day to use those words to bring people into a life-transforming encounter with Jesus Christ. And we, we're able to tell people what has happened to us, what Jesus has done for us personally. And sometimes when this happens, another person is added to the fellowship of believers in our passage today, we, we see two things that John does that is a, a good example for us. The first is that uh, he testifies. When we testify, this is, this is when we, we say what we have seen and what we have heard and what we have felt as Jesus has brought transformation in our lives. But we're also called to proclaim when we proclaim, we, we are commissioned to proclaim boldly that those who follow Jesus will also experience that same life transformation. You see, we're, we're given the authority to say this boldly, to know that it's true because of the authority given to us by Jesus. And so we're all called to both testify and to proclaim See, that's how making disciples works. But I do think we need to keep in mind that the, the fellowship of believers in, in Scripture, it's referred to as the body of Christ, that it has many different parts that work in different ways. And how you testify and how you proclaim, it might look different if you're a mouth than if you're a foot. If you're a hand, don't try to be a mouth. And if you're a mouth, don't try to be a an eye, what we have to do is find out what body part we are, figure out what what does it look like for me to testify and proclaim in that context. We we don't have to do exactly what John did. I mean, think of it this way. There There were 12 disciples who walked with Jesus and knew him well, and yet only four of them wrote down the gospel account. Having assurance in our salvation comes when we observe all that Jesus has commanded us in the context of this fellowship, in the context of discipleship. You see, we have to participate to be a part of the fellowship. And and this is made easier when we remember that in fellowship, our joy is made complete. In in verse 4, he says that we we, the writers of the gospel, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. See, ultimately, John understood that we will never experience complete joy outside of the fellowship of, of the church and the, and the fellowship with God. And, and this is because God has put inside us a yearning, a, a need for satisfaction and And we will never be satisfied with anything less than seeing Jesus' mission fulfilled. Remember John the Baptist? He had a thriving ministry before Jesus came along. In fact, that was his ministry to prepare the way for Jesus. And at some point, Jesus started to be more popular than John. More people were going to Jesus to be baptized than were coming to John the baptizer. And, and John's disciples were concerned about it, and they, they asked him if he was concerned, and this is what he said in John 3. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete see as a follower of Jesus John the Baptist was elated he was overjoyed to see that Jesus ministry was doing well even if that meant his own had to diminish because really their goal was aligned they were in fellowship together Jesus ministry was John's ministry they weren't competing And there's no greater joy that we experience than when we see someone come to faith in Jesus. The only thing that even comes close is when we watch those people grow in their faith. Seeing people grow and be added to the fellowship, that's directly related to our level of joy. Now, I don't know exactly when I became a Christian, because frankly, for the first couple decades of my life, I really just kind of toyed around with it. But in my mid-twenties, Jesus had brought me to a place where I was ready to turn my life over to him. And the only real problem was I hadn't talked to anyone about it. I hadn't, I hadn't talked with my wife about it. And I had a best friend at the time who I was pretty sure would be completely opposed to the idea for various reasons. But my sister had been witnessing uh, to me, and she had invited me to an evangelical crusade, and and uh, you know, not knowing how it worked, I thought that you had to go to something like that in order to become a Christian, and so I agreed to go. And wouldn't you know it, as we're as we're all leaving, my best friend just stops by unannounced, and he didn't have anything better to do, so he decided to join us, and. And so we went. And and this event was amazing. The music was great. The sermon was great. And when the preacher gave the altar call, literally thousands of people left their seats and went down onto the field in Anaheim Stadium to give their lives to Jesus. But I didn't know what my wife would think. I didn't know what my friend would think. And so I stayed in my seat and when it was over, we were all walking back to the car and I could see that my sister was so distraught and disappointed. She had been praying for us and, and, and proclaiming and testifying to us and, and we had all agreed to go to this event and, and then we didn't come to faith and she was sad. But as we're walking to the car, my, my friend says, You guys are my ride, so I didn't go down on the field, but I think you should know that I said that prayer. And then my wife said, I did too. And my little brother, he did too. And I said, I did too. And there was so much joy in that moment. And I tell you, I I haven't felt joy like that too many times in my life. But I guarantee you, no one felt more joy in that moment than my sister but I know it doesn't always happen this way, right? I, I suspect that we all know someone who's not yet a believer, and it seems like no matter how much we pray or or testify or or give them books or try to get them to come to faith, it just seems like it's never going to happen. And there's a sorrow there that is it prevents us from the completeness of joy. And I think that's what John is hinting at here. That this fellowship is so important. It it keeps us on mission. It helps us to be patient in these times. It, It helps us to keep praying and keep proclaiming with all of our heart, even when things appear hopeless. I would say if you're not experiencing joy In your life it might be that you're not truly in Christian fellowship I think we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves this question when was the last time we were a part of the mission to make disciples at New City Church we we try to create lots of opportunities for people at all different parts of their faith journey Uh, to, to take part in discipleship. We have discipleship groups, but we also have missional communities and we are offering classes and we try to find opportunities where we can come together and serve together. And these are all places where you can witness or even experience for yourself the power of Jesus transforming lives. But we do have to ask ourselves, when was the last time we shared with someone what Jesus has done in our lives? Where we told someone what we have seen and what we have heard and what we have felt. You know, when we do this, we, we not only share the joy of Jesus with others, but we receive joy when others respond and join us in fellowship. I, kn- I, know, I know for some of us, that sharing our story is a daunting idea. You know, if you've never done this before, if you can't imagine doing this, if you're intimidated by it, this is what I suggest you do. Find a Christian friend and ask them if you could share your story with them. There's no pressure there for them to come to Jesus because they already know Him. But just get comfortable and with saying your story out loud I guarantee you it will bless them to hear it I've heard almost all of your stories if you're a covenant partner here there's a good chance I sat in a room with you and I I heard what God had done in your life and there has not been a single time where I didn't leave those meetings feeling the joy of God in my life get familiar with saying your story out loud And then just pray and ask God in in His timing to give you courage and opportunity to share your story with a friend who's not yet a believer. It's okay if it takes a while. Go at God's pace. And even if it's not yet time for you to boldly proclaim your own testimony, well, I would encourage you to think about what is your role within this body of believers within our fellowship. Ask God to show you where He wants you to serve and and start there. I promise you, God is not going to give you more than He will enable you to handle. Our assurance in our salvation, it's strengthened when we experience the, the joy of the kingdom, of seeing it grow, of seeing our fellowship expand. Church, I'm so excited about this new series. I'm praying that we're going to be challenged as a church to to really examine what we believe and then to embrace our roles within the fellowship of the kingdom. So peace and joy to all of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I thank you for your word. I thank you that it, it challenges us. Lord, we believe in in a real Jesus. Lord, we believe that you were real, that you are real, that you, that you have a physical body, that you are one of us. And yet, Lord, we believe that you are our God, that you are sovereign, that you empower our lives. And Lord, we believe that it was through your life and through your death that we receive eternal life. We are so grateful for this. Lord, if there are those watching this morning who do not yet believe in you, Lord, I pray that you would make yourself manifest to them. That they would come to know you in a new way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.